0: this morning. We're turning to Ephesians chapter 2. I encourage you to turn there. If, just as a, a review in recent months, we've been working our way through these first two chapters of Ephesians as we've seen God's great plan of salvation. And in Ephesians 1, we saw this salvation described from God's point of view, how from all eternity, God had chosen his people in Christ to be adopted as his sons, and, and how he redeemed them by Christ's blood and sealed them in His Holy Spirit. Then in chapter 2, we saw salvation described from our point of view, how we walked dead in our trespasses and sins. But then God made us alive in Christ, offering us salvation as a gift by His grace to be received by faith in Christ. And then how God has torn down barriers that were between us, between us and God, but also between us And others, Jew and Gentile, of any people of all tribes and tongues and nations brought together as one new people united together in Christ. And having explained God's salvation from each of these angles, Paul now comes with these final verses of chapter 2 to offer a concluding statement of who we are as God's people. So if you would read with me, we'll begin in verse 19 and read to the end of chapter 2 of Ephesians. So then... Father, we thank you for this word that you've given us. Even as you breathed these words out through Paul, you now continue to speak through them to us. Would you encourage us in Christ and show us who we are in Christ this morning? And we pray this in his name. Amen. I think we all know that we will go to fairly significant lengths to fit in, to belong. Sometimes that means reading the books everyone else is reading, or watching the shows everyone else is watching, or wearing the shoes everyone else is wearing to show that we're not an outsider, we fit in. Of course, at times it's more involved. If you were a student at West Point, for instance, in your first year, a plebe goes through basic training, is treated as a, a plebe after their summer or their plebe summer. They probably suffer at the hands of upperclassmen throughout much of the first year, but towards the end of the second semester, recognition night arrives. At recognition night, they're promoted to cadet private first class, receive their pin, and for the first time, the upperclassmen shake their hands and welcome them into camaraderie in their company. A sense of belonging is achieved. Of course. Paul has explained here in Ephesians that if we want to talk about belonging to God's people, there's nothing we can do or accomplish or endure in order to gain access to God's people on our own. There's no shoe that Nike or Adidas sells that we can buy to fit in and belong. No effort on our part can gain access to God or to His people. On our own, we are outsiders, separated from God and from His people. But what we could not do, God has done for us through Jesus Christ, through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross to cover our sins, that we might be welcomed into his people. And as he summarizes what God has accomplished for us and offers us in Christ, Paul in this passage gives us three pictures this morning, three pictures that summarize who we are and the privileges we have when we have been reconciled to God and to each other. These pictures are fellow citizen, member of God's family, and part of God's holy temple. And I want to look at each of these pictures this morning. So let's start with picture number one. You see it in verse 19. Paul says that in Christ you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Now citizenship is country language. It's, it's kingdom language brings to mind where we belong. And the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that in Christ, our citizenship is in the kingdom of God. Now, as a review, God's kingdom is where God reigns. And while in one sense this might seem to apply to the entire universe since God is sovereign over all, Scripture repeatedly distinguishes between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of this world, where the prince of the power of the air has some sway and hearts are lived in rebellion against God. And the kingdom of God, where His rule is established and He is worshipped by His people. Even now, God's people and the church are an outpost of the kingdom of God in this world as we wait for that final day when God will come again to bring His kingdom and to drive out the kingdom of this world But let's think about what it means to be a citizen of this kingdom. Citizenship marks who belongs and who does not. If I were to spend a year, say, in Europe, maybe a country of France, there's a lot I'm going to need to be over there in France. I'm going to need my passport. I'm going to need visas. I'm going to need permission to be there because I'm not a citizen of France. I, I don't belong there. I'm not a member of that country. But of course, if I'm overseas and I want to fly home, I have full access back into America. I am a citizen here. The Homeland Security official who checks my passport is going to say, Welcome home, Mr. Walker, because this is where I belong. And because I'm a citizen of this country, my citizenship also shapes some of my identity. I'm an American. And this identity and this citizenship doesn't just tell me something about myself. It's not just an individual statement. It also binds me to others who belong here as well, other American citizens. If you've, if you've ever been traveling abroad in another country and maybe you feel a little out of place because you're in another culture and you run across another American, you have an instant, instant bond with them regardless of their ethnic background because we're both American citizens. We, we both belong here. And our citizenship in God's kingdom, it separates us from the kingdom of this world and shapes our identity together as those who belong to the kingdom of God. And citizenship also involves loyalty. We're a citizen, we're loyal to our country and our fellow citizens. We see a sharp rise in patriotism when your country's attacked because we, we bond together as, as fellow citizens, loyal to our country and to each other. Think, think maybe about how we have loyalty to our fellow citizens even though we don't even know them. Think about the Olympics, how we take pride when one of our fellow Americans wins a gold medal. I don't know who that person is. I've never met that person in my life. But he's an American and I'm proud when he wins a gold medal. Some of you are maybe fellow golf fans. You know that Hideki Matsuyama instantly became a Japanese national hero two weeks ago when he won the Masters Golf Tournament, the first Japanese golfer to win a major, they're saying that Japan may well ask him to light the Olympic torch in Japan this summer because of their pride in him and his accomplishment. There we have this, this loyalty to our country and to one another as citizens, and so it is with God's people. Our loyalty above all is to God himself as the King of kings and to his Son Jesus before every knee whom before before whom every knee will bow, but also to one another as fellow citizens in Christ. Who we honor and bear with and encourage, and we delight to see one another's progress in Christ because we're fellow citizens of the kingdom. Of course, the Bible is very clear about one thing spiritually, there is no dual citizenship. You cannot be a citizen of the kingdom of this world and of the kingdom of God. Either you are a citizen of the world and an outsider and a stranger to the kingdom of God, as Paul says we were before coming to Christ, or we are a citizen of the kingdom of God and a stranger and an exile in this world. That's why Peter calls those who trust Christ sojourners and exiles in this world. And that's why the world would often mock or reject those who put their faith in Christ. As 1 Peter 4.4 puts it, just as we might consider someone from another culture odd because they do something different than us, so the world thinks it strange that God's people do not join them in the passions of the flesh and the delights of this world. And that is why it is so important for every one of us to choose this day whom we will serve. Where do you belong? Whose guidance and protection will we depend upon? For those of you who are kids and young adults, as you grow and interact with the world more and more, you will be faced increasingly with this decision Where do you belong? Because there is a battle over each one of your souls. The world will offer you its plan for satisfaction and belonging and tempt you to put your loyalty there. But God continues to hold out to each one of you the offer by His grace. If you will persevere in faith in Jesus Christ, you will be welcomed as fellow citizens and saints in His kingdom. That's picture number one picture number two we find also in verse 19. Paul goes on to say that those who are in Christ are members of God's household. Now the word for household here is not the word for house as in the physical structure. The word refers to the family unit that lives in the house. So this is family language here. And Paul is emphasizing that in Christ, Jew and Gentile, Those from every tribe and tongue and nation who have come to Christ are brothers and sisters, fellow siblings as God's own sons and daughters. This is an image, of course, that Jesus and his apostles use frequently. Jesus talks about being reborn from above, being reborn into a spiritual family. Paul tends to use adoption language about how when we come to Christ, we are adopted into God's family you think of Galatians 4, God has sent his spirit to redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. This really is an incredible statement, isn't it? How dare we say that we would be children of God? We are born by nature children of wrath. What we deserve in ourselves is punishment and death. And perhaps, perhaps we could presume on God's mercy, and, and maybe we could say or dare to hope that in God's mercy, if we at least do our best, instead of punishing us, maybe God would accept us as His servants. That's what the prodigal son thought. You remember the prodigal son from Luke 15? after wasting all of his father's fortune on parties and pre- friends and pleasures, only to find himself destitute and hungry and longing for some satisfaction, he decides to return to his father and say, Father, I am not worthy to be called your son, but treat me as one of your hired servants. It makes sense. It's a logical request. But what does the father say? The father says, nonsense! bring the best robe, bring a ring, bring shoes for his feet, slaughter the calf. For this is my son who was lost, but now is found. And that's how God treats everyone, Jew and Gentile, who puts their faith in Christ. And the image of a family, of course, emphasizes intimacy and relationship and access The citizen, yes, may be loyal to the king, but very few citizens have a relationship with the king like a child does with his parent. A citizen may make an appeal to the king. Maybe you might write a letter to the White House, but few citizens have access at will into the presence of the king. But that's what a child has with his father. That's what we are welcomed to when we come to God through Jesus Christ. But again, Paul's emphasis here is not just on our relationship with God, it's also on our relationship with one another. As you look around this sanctuary, as you look around Lancaster County, as you look around the world, and you see others who have come to faith in Jesus, you're not interacting with fellow members of the same club. You're You're not looking around at people who frequent the same establishment. You're looking around at family. You're looking around at your siblings in Jesus Christ. And that should change how we look at one another. At the very least, it should give us a desire to know one another and welcome one another. as As a large church, seeing visitors and welcoming them can be a challenge for us. We maybe look for those we know, but everyone who knows Christ who comes through these doors is a sibling of ours. It's a brother or sister in Christ. It encourages us to reach out to one another a significant part of our identity is a bond with and loyalty to one another as fellow siblings in Jesus. A significant part of our identity is our corporate identity with one another as a family of God. And so we're called to draw near to one another and pray for one another and serve one another as brothers and sisters in him. And so we have fellow citizenship with the kingdom. We have siblings in God's family. But then Paul gives us a third picture In verses 20 to 22, God's people, he says, are the holy temple in the Lord built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. Now, maybe a building seems less relational to you than a family or even citizenship. But if you follow Paul's logic, it's actually the opposite. Just as the family was more intimately connected with one another than citizens, so a building is more intimately connected to one another than a family. A family might travel, they might be apart from one another, you might even have a conflict and broken relationships in a family, but stones of a building are permanently connected to one another. And unless that building is going to come crashing down, they cannot be separated from one another. Where's a Son or daughter has a relationship with their parent, with God, the church has an even greater privilege in Christ here. Because it tells us that God has actually come to make his dwelling in us. And so this third picture is the most intimate of all of them. Well, how exactly are we as people built into God's temple? Well, it says that we're built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles and the prophets are often paired together. In God's Word, they were called to play an important role in the early days of the church. Apostles were those who witnessed Jesus' ministry and resurrection and were called and sent by Him to speak with His authority, while the prophets, the New Testament prophets, were those who received revelation from God for the guidance and the good of His church in those early days. In other words, both the apostles and the prophets played a unique and unrepeatable role and bringing God's word to his church as its standard and its authority. And that's why we believe that many of the gifts that the apostles and prophets had, miracles and revelations and prophecies, are, are not repeated today. They belonged to the apostles and their calling, and the prophets and their calling, as they authenticated the message of the gospel before God's word was written down. But today, we don't look for new apostles. We don't look for new revelations. The foundation that God offers us is found in his word. The words of the apostles and prophets written down for us. And that is the foundation God's church is built on. But of course, the apostles and prophets themselves would have been rather useless had there not been a cornerstone. You try to build a foundation without a cornerstone and it will not last. The cornerstone was the key to the whole building. It held the structure steady. All the walls were squared up to and lined up with the cornerstone. And these cornerstones could be massive. One cornerstone has been unearthed from the the southern wall of the temple and said to be nearly 40 feet long, weighing over 80 tons. That's more than two semi-trucks fully loaded. It was a solid, immovable rock that grounded the foundation and the whole structure. Which is, of course, exactly what Jesus Christ does for His church. He is the solid rock which grounds His church. Jesus, of course, is the one that the prophet Isaiah, you think of the prophet Isaiah who spoke in Isaiah twenty-eight 16, that God promised to lay a foundation in Zion, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone as a sure foundation. Jesus is that precious cornerstone. And on that foundation and with that cornerstone, God is then building His holy temple made up of His people. And Jim Boyce, the former pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church, argues that calling believers in Jesus stones in God's temple is the perfect analogy for so many reasons. The stones are all attached to Jesus, the cornerstone. That's what makes them part of the building, just as it is coming to Jesus that makes us part of God's people. Stones of different sizes, shapes, and even different materials are used for different functions in the building, just as God's people of many different gifts and types and nations are called together to play different roles in His building. Plus, the stones are linked to one another, and even if stones are nowhere close to one another in the building and maybe wouldn't even know that another stone exists, they're still part of one whole. And so, believers across the ages and across the globe are part of one unified body in Jesus Christ. And finally, Individual stones are chosen and shaped and placed in the temple or in this building not to draw attention to themselves. No one goes up to a great cathedral and says, well, let me just look at this one stone. you look at the whole structure. And in the same way, God's people are called to be part of the church, not so that someone would look at themselves, but to see the building as the whole which is the temple and dwelling place of God where His glory is seen. The emphasis is on Him and His glory. In fact, remember what God said about the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament. In Exodus 25.8, God told Israel to build him a sanctuary that he might dwell in her midst. And God's glory appeared to his people there in the tabernacle and in the temple. And so in the same way, the New Testament is saying, what does God intend for his church? To be the place where he dwells and his glory is seen. I think it's worth pointing out that while the New Testament definitely teaches that each believer is a temple of the Holy Spirit, that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is corporate. He's saying that in the church as a whole and God's people as a whole, His Spirit dwells that His glory might be seen. We're we're so used to thinking individually, but God is enfolding us into something much bigger and more beautiful, His, His universal church. Will together be filled with his presence by his spirit to display his glory to the world that's really our desire isn't it not that somebody would drive up oregon pike and look at westminster and say hey that's a really beautiful church or look at any one of us and say hey that's that's a really great follower of god there that's not what we want our desire is for people to look at his church and say wow their god is great he does glorious things and to worship him so here is Paul laying out at this section that in Christ we are fellow citizens, fellow members of God's family and part of his temple. Since Christ, through Christ God has reconciled us to himself and to each other. John Stott, one commentator says, we are no longer aliens but the kingdom over which God rules, the family which he loves and the temple in which he dwells. That's who we are together in Christ. Let me, as we conclude suggest two thoughts for us to consider as we think about this passage. First, these are stirring images of God's glory in his church. But if we look around at the church, sometimes it seems more like the church is crumbling and shaking than standing in glory. You guys have probably read the same news articles that I have in recent weeks. High-profile people like Josh Harris and Desiring God blogger Paul Maxwell have denied their faith and said we are no longer Christians. We no longer consider ourselves followers of Jesus. There have been horrifying sins brought to light in the lives of prominent Christians, Ravi Zacharias and and others. Recent polls suggest that church membership has dropped below 50% in America for the first time in the history of polling, implying a flight from the church. Many of us see divisions and sins and hypocrisies in the church. These are grieving, and they can be confusing. Why do we see these things after reading a passage like this? But in the face of these stories, we need to remember several things. First, we need to remember that what we are reading about all around us is exactly what the Bible said would happen. Jesus said that in those days, many who confessed him would be led astray while the one who endured to the end would be saved. Paul, the apostle, talks in his day of many who professed Christ, but then rejected him, making a shipwreck of their faith. John talks about those who were part of us, who then went out from us, showing that they were never part of God's people in the first place. What we're seeing and reading grieves us, but it should not surprise us. It's exactly what God's word tells us would happen because we're in a spiritual war. Instead of surprising us, these events should motivate us to draw near to God, to lean upon Him and His Word and His Spirit so that we might walk faithfully and persevere to the end so that we might be saved. These verses should call us to support one another as fellow siblings of God's family, to encourage one another, to pray that God would forgive and restrain our divisions and sins and show his glory in and through us so that he gets the praise. Draw near to one another, draw near to his word and his spirit, persevere to the end. And of course, even though we've read these prominent stories, and there are a number of these prominent stories that discourage us, The news media is not talking about all the other stories. The stories of thousands and thousands of people every day coming to Jesus Christ all around the world. I've been reading stories of surprising works of God bringing people to Jesus in Asia, in the Middle East, in India, and here in America too. In recent weeks, I've gotten to sit with many of you, nearly 50 of our new members, and heard the stories of how God has been creative and faithful to bring people in all different stages of life from all different backgrounds to know Jesus. And he's continuing to do the same thing right here all around us every day. After all, what does Ephesians say? That God's people are being built into the temple of God. It's an ongoing process. Jesus is still at work drawing people to himself. And so we should pray and persevere and be ready to talk of Jesus whenever we have opportunity in the confident hope that God who raises the dead is at work. It does not surprise us, even as it grieves us, to hear these stories of those who shipwreck their faith. But we have hope and confidence in God who is at work and who is at work all around us. Second thought to leave you with. Note the significance of the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone of God's people. I read an article recently by Stephen Wellham, professor at Southern Baptist Seminary, and more importantly than that, the son-in-law of Westminster members, Stabe and Mark Hackenberg. Wonderful article pointing out the confusion that there is surrounding the importance of Jesus within the church, within those who profess to be evangelical Christians. Recent survey suggests 65% Agreed with the statement that Jesus is the first and greatest created being. That's a heresy. It was rejected in the early church. 30% agreed that Jesus was a great teacher, but not God. 42% said that God would accept any religion, meaning the emphasis we put on Jesus is of little consequence. Now, there are many things that we can be wrong about in life, and there's minimal consequences. I've been wrong about which fuse to turn off when doing electrical work in my house. <laughs> this is a little disappointing. You get a little jolt, but it's a minimal, minimal consequence. I was, I was wrong three weeks ago to think that it was a great idea to jump off a loose log to get something out of the tree for my kids. It's not a good idea. The result was a painful shoulder. But being wrong about Jesus is not in that category. Being wrong about Jesus and who he is is a matter of life and death. Because God tells us he's appointed Jesus as the only one who can bring us into his presence. And that's not, a, that's not a Presbyterian thing. That's not an evangelical thing. That's not a Western thing. We read in God's word that there is no other name under all of heaven by which one might be saved. And Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. But the glorious news is that Jesus is available to all. There's the invitation to any who would come to Jesus. But we dare not believe that he is something less than he is. We dare not academically say, oh yes, I know that's who he is, and yet find our identity and our joy in something else, whether it's the successes of the world or social activism or doing our best and being pretty good people. Because Jesus is the cornerstone. And that is what Paul reminds us this morning. Jesus is the cornerstone upon which God's people of every tribe and tongue and nation are built, and our call is to look to Jesus, who has died on the cross to take our sins and risen again to give us life and invited us to come through Him into the presence of His Father, that we might find forgiveness and life of hope. Because as we do, we are reconciled and joined to Him, our Heavenly Father, and to each other, as fellow citizens and siblings in God's family who are being built into a holy temple with whom God will dwell for all eternity. What a blessing is offered to everyone in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you and praise you for sending your son Jesus to die in our place to pay the punishment that we deserved to accomplish what we could not accomplish and to rise again for our life. And how we thank you that you didn't do this to just individually save us, but you've now called us together in a beautiful family that crosses cultures and divisions. That we might be fellow citizens of the kingdom of God and siblings in your family and part of your holy temple with the astounding promise that you would dwell with us for all eternity. Our prayer, Father, is that we might persevere to the end in faith in Jesus. And that not for anything in ourselves, but because of your work in us, you might show your glory through your church. We pray this, Father, for the sake of your name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.